everybody. I'm back here with Sarah Barry, uh, who is probably most famous for her little stint on the All About Movies Disney episode. Um, but today, we're going to talk about Pixar films, which is a category I'm probably a bigger fan of, if we're all being honest with each other here. Uh, Disney films are great. Pixar films hit me to my core. They, they get me. They're pretty good. I'm they're, not gonna they're pretty lie. Good. Yeah, I know you're more of a more of a Disney purist. Not so much a purist as my favorite movies tend to fall more under the Disney banner itself. I like Pixar, but none of my favorites are Pixar. With uh, these topics, I'd try and maybe give some synopsises of these films, but I think we're probably free to more freely talk about them. Like I don't. I don't think people will be unfamiliar with Toy Story. So I think we can kind of dive into the meat of it a bit here. Uh, how great is Toy Story? Toy Story's pretty okay. Oh, it was you're never, killing me. It was honestly never one of my favorites. I know oh. it's huge. I know it's historical. It's not a favorite and never has been. Oh, as a kid, I, I wore out my VHS tape for the first Toy Story movie. And what's the deal? with them getting progressively sadder until the third one just like I was crying in they the They just theater. wanted to rip out your heart is yeah, really I'm what convinced. happened here. Uh, I'm really glad that it worked out because Disney's original plan was for Toy Story 2 to be a straight-to-DVD release. But uh, Pixar was like, oh no, we're gonna do this right. And after like the merger, Toy Story 3 was given back to Pixar because Disney had had different ideas for it and had a different team starting it. Uh, that original got scrapped and it got given back to Pixar to do. And it's the second highest grossing animated film behind Frozen. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's so bizarre that they ever wouldn't be backing Toy Story 2 because the first one did obscenely well. As far as money goes. It did obscenely well. They were still backing it, but they were backing it to be a direct-to-DVD, not a theatrical release. Uh, good thing they didn't, because they made so much money. <laughs> they really did, but under the exclusive Disney banner, most sequels are direct-to-DVD. Uh, I can't think of any offhand that are direct Disney that have been theatrical releases. I want to say the upcoming Frozen 2 is probably going to be one of the first, if not the first. Yeah, that's true. Is it coming out before uh, Wreck-It Ralph 2? I'm not sure. I think Wreck-It Ralph 2 is coming out first because I believe I've seen trailers and more promotional stuff for it than I have for Frozen 2. Yeah, I, I think so too, but even still, that's that's still one of the few things that, that we'll be getting that full-blown theatrical sequel. Yeah, the first Toy Story, great. Not too emotional. Like, you get a little little invested, but it's mostly just just kind of some people finding their, their place in their social circles. It's really sweet. It's, it's a fun movie. I just didn't attach to it as a lot of people did. Yeah, and then the second one, it gets more emotional. Uh, it does. I think I liked the second one a little bit better because I loved the introduction of Jesse uh, and the villain was a lot of fun. Uh, one thing that I love about Pixar is their animated bloopers. Yeah. 
the fact they go through the effort and they make animated bloopers and it's just like yes yeah as a kid you don't know the difference you see bloopers for both kinds of movies and then looking back you're like there, there wouldn't be bloopers that's this is animated no they put time and effort into having bloopers oh i think my favorite is like the outtakes for the whole potato head family exchange as to all the things <laughs> she's shoving inside of him uh some keys i don't know what it's for but you never know yeah uh woody uh sitting on a roll of masking tape and getting stuck in the middle of it yeah that one's pretty good uh, uh, uh them doing the show in the cardboard box in the outtakes oh yeah uh pigs are so pretty they are. They do a lot of really fun stuff. The fact that they hide, like, the Easter eggs in all of their movies. Yeah, like, you got, uh, you got the Bugs Life characters for just a split second in Toy Story 2. They're on some of the leaves. I know the Pizza Planet truck shows up all the time. Yeah, and then the, I guess this originally starts in the Luxo short, but you have that ball that's that's at least the design is in most of the it really the is movies. i want to say the little girl from monsters inc is in toy story 3 uh i want to say lotso from toy story 3 is an up um and those are the ones that i can think of at the moment but a lot of them show up there's at least one or two easter eggs in every uh pixar movie yeah it's they they definitely have interdependent love between it's really just a handful of directors that have made all of these great Pixar films. Yeah, I want to say when Toy Story came out, they had maybe 40 or so animators and that could be higher than it actually was cuz they had lost a lot of people at the point when they were making these movies. Now they've got a lot more, but when it started out, it was just a handful of people it wasn't very many uh yeah but just looking at who directs like the films you have john lassiter pete doctor andrew stanton and lee unkrich and for the most part that's who directs the core films like um the good dinosaur has a different director some of the more out there cars films has a different director i think for like cars 3 but otherwise, it's just those handful of guys. And they've done an amazing job. That's true. Um, moving on to, like, Toy Story 3, again, we get an even more emotional story with, with me crying in the theater. Mm -hmm. uh, you have the toys almost dying as they are going to fall into an incinerator. <laughs> Holding hands, and it's like, oh, God, this is the end. No. I, I saw somewhere online there was a guy that pranked his mom by just importing Toy Story 3, cutting out everything after that, and then he played it for his mom, and she's like, is that it? And he's like, yeah, that's the end. They all died. That's so mean. Uh, huh. but, but yeah, that's, that's some intense moments. They're planning on making a Toy Story 4. Yeah, the rumor that I heard is... It's about the quest to find Bo Peep, because she wasn't in 3. Yeah, they make a mention of her not being there. Uh, when At the very beginning, where they're talking about them possibly going into storage because Andy's going off to college, they're like, we've lost some friends along the way. 
Yeah, and I I guess that'll be an interesting story. There's something that I've started to notice when I watch Toy Story lately, though. The first one. Bo Peep's not that great. Like, yeah, she hangs out and smooches on Woody and, you know, they're, they're happy. When Buzz comes along, she's like, oh. And I'm quoting directly this line. I found my moving buddy. Yeah, that uh, definitely happened. No wonder Woody was so mad the whole time. But then Jesse came along and now Buzz has his lady. That's true. So Bo people will just be to Woody now, now that Buzz yep. is tank. Oh, jeez. So moving on from non-Toy Story films, maybe you'll get a little more excited <laughs> for uh, Bugs Life. Is this one of your... I liked it. It was really cute. It was a lot of fun. Uh, I enjoyed that they made a ladybug a dude. Yeah. Just because they were like, no, we're going there. Yeah, and it, uh, technically a princess movie, if we're going back to the, <laughs> the Disney ideas. You've got the princess aunt. Uh, two of them. You have the older sister and the little sister Dot. Oh, that's true. That's true. What a weird movie. They're, they're, it's a movie about some bugs. Pixar's not afraid to go out there. They do the weird thing. They do something that's like, I think this could be fun. We're going to go with this one. Yeah, I think a big part of that is the reason that I've heard on some bonus features for Toy Story that they didn't want to include a lot of people in Toy Story is that they just didn't look great animated. So you're getting a lot of films without people in them to start. Yeah, it w it's easier to make something look like a bug than it is to look like a human. Because you have that uncanny valley where it's just like, that's human, but that's not human. That's really weird. Yeah, going back to the shorts, I know in Tin Toy, that's one creepy baby. That is the creepiest <laughs> baby. And then looking at Toy Story, it's a bit better, the younger sister, but only just a little better. That's still kind of a creepy looking Yeah, baby. I mean, Sid... Yeah, Sid's scary. <laughs> One of the few people you actually see as people, and he's creepy. Yeah, because you get, you get bits of Andy. You don't see any of Andy's mom in, in uh, the first Toy Story. I think you start seeing her in Toy Story 2 more. Yeah. And then you see the younger sister, and I think that's about it. Um, you see a few Sid's different humans in uh, Toy Story 3. Yeah, that's when, that's when I think they feel comfortable, because you get a bunch of kids. Yeah. The, the preschool scenes. Yeah, at that point, they were a lot more comfortable with the animation of humans. Yeah, and then uh, the next film you get, you get a human character uh, with, with Monsters, Inc. This is the first not directed by John Lasseter. Um, kind of control freak John Lasseter doing Toy Story, Bugs Life, Toy Story 2. Now they're giving Pete Doctor a shot to make Monsters, Inc., which... It's still great. It is. It's a lot of fun. Uh, Sully would have been a pain in the rear to animate because each and every single one of his hairs had to be animated separately. Yeah, I hear that that was part of the Pixar innovations is them working on a system to better animate hair just because they had to invent whole new things to animate that correctly and to yeah. look good. They do a lot of things that are pretty incredible. I know for uh, Finding Nemo, which we'll get to later, they did a lot of research 
to figure out how to animate the jellyfish. They created an entire new engine to animate the jellyfish for that one scene. Yeah, you, you can't exactly do that with monsters. No. I will say, despite monsters not being real, as far as I know anyway, uh, they do a pretty good job creating that world. Like, I, I feel like I'm in a small monster town. Yeah, it's a lot of fun seeing the different kind of monsters that they came up with. Yeah, and I watched this fairly recently, and I had forgotten exactly how long it is before we get to the core of the story. You get a lot of build up like they walk to work and you see all about town you see all bunch of different kind of monsters you get the fact that apparently there's an italy in monster world because there's an italian monster serving pizza at of a course corner there stand is. there are monsters for every child that's that's true they gotta have something for the italian children they do uh but but monsters inc is great and then since you kind of kind of seemed more comfortable talking Finding Nemo, that is the next film that they made after Monsters, Inc., which is also good. You get another non-John Lasseter film, too, with uh, Andrew Stanton stepping in to, to make this film. And it's pretty great. It is. It's a lot of fun. Uh, the one weird thing about it is they did all the research for the jellyfish. Ignoring one very basic uh, fact from biology. Clownfish switch genders as necessary. Uh, Nemo would have turned into a girl after his mom died. Yeah, I think... uh... But I think they were going with a, this is a movie for kids? No. Yeah, they weren't going to Jurassic Park the the, uh, animals to (laughs) scar children for life. Yeah... He's just got a gimpy fin. Yeah, and it it ends up being a very sweet father-son story. It really does. It's really cute. Yeah, you get get the tale of an overprotective parent learning how to let go. But you also understand why he's so overprotective, because we get the very visceral scene of his wife dying and all of his children except for one being killed by a barracuda. Yeah, it's not even, like, they're not even children at that point. They're the idea of children because they're just the eggs. Yeah, like, I know it's mentioned that they're likely to hatch in a couple of days, so it's just, they're so close. They're super close, and the fact that Marlo, that Nemo even survived that is pretty incredible. Yeah, and I, I especially like that we get a change in Marlin... Because we see him fighting back against the Barracuda, and then afterwards we see him super overprotective about even exiting his house. With him going through his obsessive compulsive, alright, let's look, is it okay? Go back inside. Check, see if it's okay? Go back inside. Yeah, you definitely see the change in his personality. It takes him a very long time to accept that Nemo's his own fish. He can do his own thing. That's true. And then I th- I think the biggest heartwarming moment of the film, at least for me, is when after talking to the other fish in the tank for so long about how he doesn't think his dad will be out looking for him because of how scared he is, the pelican comes in and he starts telling Nemo 
the whole story about how his dad fought some sharks, swam through some jellyfish all just to find him. Yeah, I really like the scene where a bunch of fish have been captured and Nemo is what leads them to freedom. Like, everybody swim down. It's like, it can't hold all of us if we're working together. That's true. And I, I think this film, maybe more than any other ones, connects to how, despite it originating in some technological limitations, Pixar's so great at creating human moments and these non-human characters. Like, I think that's a lot more emotional than probably 80% of films I've seen with people starring in them. And these are some fish. They are some fish that you grow to love. That's true. Although, I still eat fish. Like... Happily. Yeah, like it's... But I don't eat clownfish. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, you don't You don't eat clownfish. You don't eat the kind of fish that Dory is. True. Though apparently a lot of people uh, tried to adopt those types of fish, like, right after the movie. But because they're tropical fish, people weren't taken care of. So a lot of fish died. Ah, uh, way to go, Pixar, killing a bunch of fish. Yeah, that's why uh, explicitly at the beginning of Finding Dory, they were like, please don't adopt these unless you know what you're doing. <laughs> yeah, I, I suppose we should touch on Finding Dory. Um, a lot of people didn't care for it that much. I thought it was okay. I know, yeah. I think we all went to see it together, in fact, when it came out. Yeah, I believe so. I liked it. I thought it was cute. Uh, I mostly liked Hank. But then yeah. again, octopi are some of the coolest creatures ever. That's true. And they really explore a lot of the different ways that this one particularly can be cool. He's smarter than a lot of the other animals. And he uses his camouflage abilities at a few points. Yeah. Like, octopi are scary smart. Uh, I remember reading a story where one was breaking out of his tank because he had learned the guard's rotation and stealing and eating fish from other tanks and making it back to his tank unnoticed. Yeah, I know that most places of the world, like, unlike a lot of other animals, you have to give anesthesia to octopi before you're allowed to perform surgery on them. Just because of, they'll know, they'll remember, and they'll feel this they pain. They won't like you. Yeah. Um, but I do think that was one of the better parts of the film, was some of the characters that were introduced. Um, the beluga whale also was pretty cool. Yeah. She... I guess both the whales, really. Uh, Definitely. They're pretty good characters. But a lot, of, a lot of other moments kind of felt a little like they were retreading the first movie. It definitely did. Uh, the finding what is lost. I mean, seeing Dory find her family was neat, but it's one of those things you never really questioned her not having one. Yeah. Because all of the other fish you'd seen with, like, maybe one or two of their own kind, so you never really questioned Dory not having a family. Yeah, and I, I think they did a better job than they could have at making it seem like an issue all along because... The flashback that we get at the beginning extends all the way to Dory meeting Marlin. At the time, she was apparently looking for her family, according to the backstory we're giving, given in Finding Dory. Um, and she does say, oh, you know, we're looking for someone. Are we looking for my family? And Marlin's like, no, we're looking for my son. And she's like, okay, in the original movie. 
So th- there's kind of seeds of it there, but it, it does a little bit feel forced. Very bare, very basic seed, so. But it was a cute movie. I liked it. Yeah, and I, I suppose uh, one of my other problems with it, and this is probably kind of nitpicky, these animals do a heck of a lot to interfere in the human world. Like, we get a little bit of it in the first movie, but it's still reasonable that fish are jumping out of their tanks. Like, that happens. Yeah, Um, fish do try and commit suicide, apparently. Yeah, and then the bird flies into the dentist office while birds fly into windows, because that happens. It does. Mostly not on purpose, and it's really funny. Yeah, yeah, it's... It's generally not not with cause like it is in Finding Nemo, although maybe it is, because they don't know that that bird's doing it on purpose. But then we get, in Finding Dory, an octopus stealing a truck with help of a fish, and otters also assisting. Cooperating, yeah. Yeah. Um, So... A lot of interspecies (laughs) communication going on. Yeah, I think that in the, the Finding Nemo world... People have got to be on to animals now after the events of Finding Dory. Like, I mean, they have to be. Like, how could that have happened if the animals didn't? Yeah, and this even extends to the rest of the Pixar films because in Monsters, Inc., all of this stuff could be happening. It's all about what's maybe happening behind closed doors. Like, Toy Story, this stuff could be happening. Mm-hmm. Like, not really, but there's some plausible deniability for kids there. It's enough that when you're a kid, you're like, oh, God, they're going to come alive. (laughs) Or that I know of people who, like, set up things, like, just so, like, if this is moved, I'll know they moved. Yeah, and we even get that in Bugs Life also. But when we get into Finding Dory territory, this is less, oh, it could be happening, and more like, oh, it's not, though. Somebody would have realized something. Yeah, and... Yeah, you even get that with the films between the first Finding Nemo and Finding Dory because you have, like, Inside Out, which, you know, not really happening, but could be, you know, you don't know. Mm-hmm. Ratatouille. There's only one guy that knows what the rats are really up to in Ratatouille. Yeah, and I mean, it's only one rat that likes to cook. The rest are fine with garbage. <laughs> That's true. That's true also. So it kind of breaks a chain there with... with uh, finding dory that that i kind of liked it being the other way yeah it takes away that plausible deniability which is pretty sad actually yeah um but moving on from the finding nemo films we get to one that at the time wasn't one of my favorites uh this one is the incredibles now this might be my favorite it's at least up there with my favorite of pixar films the incredibles is one of my favorites i will of Pixar films, I think it either tops the list or comes really, really close. Yeah, and this time we have uh, Brad Bird, uh, both writing the film and directing it also, uh, who previously had done The Iron Giant, another great animated film, not Pixar, but still a critically well-regarded movie. I wasn't a huge fan of The Iron Giant. James keeps trying to get me to re-watch it with him. He's like... You just don't remember it well enough. You'll love it if you see it again. Let's watch it. 
It's like, I, okay, honey, whatever you say. Yeah, I, I discovered it, I think, from, uh, like, a lot of people of our generation discovered it on TV. Because since it didn't do that well, it was bought for pretty cheaply to run on rotation on, like, Cartoon Network and Nickelodeon. And just, like, myself and, like, James and several other people ate that up. Became a cult classic. And I jumped on buying it when they released it on Blu-ray, like, a couple years ago. Somehow that doesn't surprise me. <laughs> I was real excited. Real excited. But but moving on to The Incredibles, a more well-regarded, uh, at the time, Brad Bird film. Uh, this film's great. It is. You've got a family of superheroes. You've got the classic strong man to protect his family. You've got Elastigirl as the mom. She can stretch and do a ton of stuff at once. You get this shy, awkward teenager who can turn invisible. And you've got this hyperactive little boy that can run super fast. And then you have Jack-Jack, who is later revealed to have all sorts of crazy out there powers. Yeah, I I always love the point that, that a lot of people make and what you're getting at is that, yeah, each power they have is a metaphor for, like, the role in the family unit. It really is, and I'm super excited after seeing the trailer for Incredibles 2 to come out this summer. Yeah, it, it definitely, according to the trailer, is going in a direction that I wouldn't have been expecting, but is definitely interesting. Yeah, I had heard a lot of people, like, theorizing and guessing what it was going to be. Some people were guessing that if it was set further in the future than it is, it's supposed to take place just minutes or seconds after the original left off, that Jack-Jack could have grown up to been a villain. Yeah, I I see why someone would say that, because how do you discipline a shape-shifting baby? like A baby that shape-shifts into a monster. <laughs> Yeah, he has fire powers at some points. He can float through walls. Uh, Solid metal. Yeah, he can turn into solid metal. He can turn into a little demon monster. Oh god, that demon monster. (laughs) Which which I like as an analogy for babies to begin with. Yes. So full of potential and destructive power. Yeah. Um... But there's some other aspects besides just how great the characters are of the film. Like, stylistically, The Incredibles is different from any of the other films. It kind of reaches a point that's... The aesthetic is a key part of the story. You get... It is, and it is their first uh, film focusing on humans. That's true. That's true. Like, there are human characters in both... Finding Nemo, Monsters, Inc., and Toy Story 2, but they are, like, the side characters. Yeah, they're, uh, mention, they're someone who's there but doesn't really matter, but for The Incredibles, it's what the focus is. Yeah, and it, even though they do a great job at humanizing these, these other characters in the previous films, uh, it definitely shows how human this story is because it is so family oriented it really is uh it's a classic story that you can go back to over and over one of my favorite parts of the movie is at the very end when mr incredible says i'm not strong enough for this i'm not strong enough to lose you yeah it's following the pixar chain of wrenching your heart when they they need to 
Yeah, they've got they've got this very specific list of heartstrings and when and where to pull on them. Yeah. Um, but going back to kind of like the the more aesthetic things, I like that it kind of has a 60s feel, both kind of at a more golden age of comic books because they're superheroes, but it also evokes a lot of like the spy genre in some of the technology used and some of the cuts and especially in like the introductory scene feels uh, like the graphic design for the title sequence feels a lot like an old James Bond movie. It really does. It's a lot of fun. Uh, Speaking of the comic books, one of the Easter eggs that I just remembered in Finding Nemo, there's a kid in the waiting room who's reading a Mr. Incredibles comic. Ah, see, that's pretty great. With him in his his blue suit, not his brand new fancy red one, but in the blue suit. That does make sense, too, with uh, maybe setting them that way. Um, I also like that this this 60s feel continues on with the score that, again, evokes James Bond in the spy films, and we probably should have mentioned the other composers for the previous films, but I think it's it's telling that it stands out so much in The Incredibles. Like, that's the little horn notes whenever some extra cool things are happening it's it's just great it really is it's got a great soundtrack and it's a lot of fun um and before we move on from the incredibles i think we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about at least some of my favorite characters you have edna mode (laughs) the best stylist ever no capes and i love that uh She's apparently based on a real Hollywood costume designer that was just adored by everyone that worked with her. And the voice is the director, Brad Bird, doing his impression of, like, what she would sound like. That is wonderful. Uh, One of my favorite things about her is how spot on she is with Jack-Jack's costume. That's true. It can just do anything. And she's like, I don't know what this baby can do, so I'm going to let the suit do anything. (laughs) Yup. Um, and then the other standout side character for me is Kari, uh, though maybe that's a little more key in the short film based on The Incredibles, where she's taking care of Jack-Jack. Ah, uh, yes. But she's such a funny character. Oh, the poor thing. I, I developed a little fan theory the other day from watching The Incredibles in the short film connected to it, um, that... She's planning on being just a great babysitter and stimulating his mind with a bunch of Beethoven and different learning tools. And my fan theory is that's what caused his powers to develop at that point, was he was finally getting some proper attention and care from a caregiver <laughs> that he's just like, ah, oh, I'm I'm at tune now. <laughs> These are my powers. It's either that or he got bored enough that he just tapped into something that was fun to play with. So... So now we've got to move on uh, to the next film in the the Pixar filmography. And it's maybe one of my least favorites. It it gets back to John Lasseter making films, which generally is a good sign. But uh, this is Cars. I don't dislike Cars. I don't mean to get that impression out there, but it's probably my least favorite out of the series of the films. I've seen this movie way too many times. It came out when my nephew was a toddler, and young boy got very attached. I've seen it 
more times than I ever cared to. So, despite this at least being one of my least favorites, I think it doesn't top a lot of non-children's lists. Uh, is it just because they're able to do so much merchandise or why is there so many cars films there's like three main cars films there's two with like planes uh there's also the cars tunes the mater shorts that existed uh i think it's honestly that it's just super marketable the fact they can just make a diecast car of every single car in it and it taps into most young boys uh fondness for vehicles that's true maybe i wasn't a big enough like like rough and rowdy kid that was into cars or maybe it's because it was like one of the later films on on me being a young young kid but like it just wasn't one of my favorites and that's that's really all that i can say negative about it, it it's a pretty all right story I like a lot of the voice casts. Maybe not so much Larry the Cable Guy, but I like Owen Wilson. Yeah, I I like the movie. I've seen it too many times. It's a perfectly okay movie that when I can forget parts of it, I might watch it again. Yeah. Somewhere decades down the line, you can watch Cars again. Yes, maybe when I'm 20 years older, I'll be able to handle watching it again. <laughs> So, so moving on uh, from Cars, we, we don't have to get too into Cars, because I don't think either of us super want to. If, if people care enough, they can watch Cars and Planes and Cars 2 and Planes 2 and Cars 3 and all the cartoons, and they can find out for themselves. They can. Um, so moving on to Ratatouille, what a better film that Ratatouille is. I actually really loved Ratatouille. It's super cute. You get this aspiring chef, this tiny little mouse, and you have Remy. His, You have this cute little mouse named Remy, who is super cute, wants to be a chef. Uh, I'm blanking on the chef's name. Oh, I can't think of it either. Remy is the only name I think I can really yeah. pick out. But he's hopeless, and he wants to be a better chef, and the only way he can be is with a mouse controlling him by his hair. Yeah, it's a, it's a crazy story. Um, you've got Brad Bird of The Incredibles coming back to write and direct this. Um, he also brings the composer back from The Incredibles, and Ratatouille's got a great score, too. It feels so connected to the fact that it's in Paris. It really does. And I really enjoy the fact that what is seeming to be a villain, the reviewer, is actually a really big softie. Yeah, I I don't know how much he would be, but he just super loves the ratatouille and the the rat's so good at making it that it transports him back to his childhood and his mother making it. Yeah, it's just a really cute, really heartwarming moment. Uh, the actual villain is like the previous head chef uh, because he got kicked out of the kitchen because the younger chef was the heir and he gets the restaurant, he gets the kitchen because he is the heir. I could see being mad about that, but... 
I could, but he gets really petty and he had turned it into a crap hole and mostly focused on selling frozen things. Yeah. Um, but getting into the voice cast a little bit, um, I love Patton Oswalt. I think it's great that he's the Remy the Rat. Patton Oswalt is such a great guy that has had crap happen to him. That's true. It seems like his life's going a bit better now. Um, he got remarried after his wife had died, which I assume is the big bad thing that you're it referring is. to. Well, I mean, he had done stand-up where he's like, yeah, she's the only thing that makes me happy. She's the only reason I'm still alive. Yeah, and they had a child, and he, he definitely definitely loves his daughter a lot, too. And I think that gave him something to, to keep going for. And he talks about his antidepressant use. And then now he's found love again, and that's nice, and it sounds like his life's going pretty good again. Yeah, and he's been in a few different live-action things that I've seen. He was in Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Oh yeah, isn't he like five different characters or something? Something like that. No one ever seems to agree on the number of them there are. (laughs) But he's just like a bunch of siblings that all look the same, right? Yep. It's pretty great. One of them dies... But there's still at least, like, two or three of them. So it's fine. Yeah, yeah. You, you've got more. Don't worry. <laughs> um, I wish I had more to say about Ratatouille. It's one that I've seen probably the least out of the Pixar films. Like, there's definitely some that I've seen less than Ratatouille. But I've not I've not seen it a lot. It's yeah. not one I have. Um, I don't think I saw it in theaters. I think I've mostly seen it pieced together from watching it on TV. Yeah, it's one that you get piecemealed a lot because it's nobody's favorite. It's a good movie, but it's nobody's favorite. I think I'd agree with that. I I haven't really heard anyone super into Ratatouille. They're just like, yeah, it's pretty good. Mm -hmm. Though I will say the food in it looks amazing. Yeah, like it does a good job. I know there's a guy on YouTube that that recreates meals from movies and TV. Uh, The show's called Binging with Babish. Oh, I think I've seen the Ratatouille episode. He makes the Ratatouille, and it's just like, okay, writing this down now because I need to make this. Yeah, and it looks spot on. Like, it looks like it's from the animated movie. It's crazy. Yeah, it really does. Um, So moving on from Ratatouille, uh, going in order again, we've got Andrew Stanton coming back from Finding Nemo, making Wally, which is also great. (laughs) Where we just keep coming up with great and great films. You and I disagree about this one. Wally was never one uh, of my favorites, mostly because I was never a huge silent film person, and most of Wally is silent. There's beeps and bloops, but there's not a lot of talking. It's a much more visual experience than it is audio. That's that's for the most part true. It it stems from the long tradition of a uh, of silent film, and it even calls back to that, showing some clips from silent films in the movie that Wally's watching. Um, though I think the sound design is definitely maybe a little overlooked, and I think it's part of what makes Wally a character that, at least for a lot of people, they can connect to, because they brought on one of the founding fathers of great sound design uh benjamin burt or yeah ben burt who did all of the space sounds from star wars 
That definitely makes sense. Yeah, they they tasked him with creating pretty much the whole sound of the film, which is, I think, different than he was used to because it's an animated film, but I think it works. Like, it's part of why you can connect to a figure that you don't get any dialogue from. You can't get a lot as far as, like, body movement because he's a cube. He is a cube, but, like, his eyes are really expressive. You also get a decent amount from Eve, even though she doesn't have facial features, but, like, her LEDs give you a good idea of what she's thinking. That's true. Um, I I think my one problem with Wally is I don't love that there's a section that's in live action. You have the previous captain of the ship that Wally ends up on with following Eve, you get a recording from that old captain, and it's Fred Willard, who is hilarious and a great actor, uh, but in live action. Yeah, they should have just animated it. I, I don't understand that choice, and maybe I should read into it a bit more, and maybe I'll start to understand it better, but it doesn't make sense. They went from, like, I get why they didn't animate the old silent films that Wally's watching. I get that. That makes sense to me. That doesn't extend to the captain of the previous ship being recorded, though. It really doesn't, because it doesn't fit. It's not in the universe. The people in the universe don't look like that. Yeah, and I'm sure they have some explanation for it, and I'm sure that in a way it makes sense, but it it puts me out of the movie every time I watch it. Yeah, it's pretty jarring. Yeah, and otherwise, the animation style looks great. They're super getting into the details at this point like all the dystopian world you get like blades of grass that are just falling over just like dried up you you can get details like it feels like it's a world and i think that's great it really is they have at this point gotten to where they can make pretty much whatever they want and they do it (laughs) that's true um, I think moving on from Wally, we'll get into a film that you like a bit better, which is Up. I love Up, but everybody loves Up. That's true. The beginning montage, montage is, or has become, one of the quintessential love stories. Carl and Ellie's love story, even though silent, is just as powerful as some of the big ones yeah and it's definitely appreciated in the film world i know in like every film class i've ever taken they're like hey you think you have to have dialogue to the scene no you don't look at this montage from up this is how you do stories told through action and it's it's basically the whole emphasis in a lot of writing classes for film writing classes that it's just like, no, use action better because look at what can be done with action alone. And it's animated. It's not even real action, but it doesn't matter. It doesn't. You can show a story through anything, and if you're relying purely on dialogue, you're failing. Yeah, and even after Up starts getting dialogue and all, all that kind of thing, it's, it's incredible. Like, it's great. 
It is. It's got so many fun characters. Uh, I love the dogs. I love their talking collars. Uh, it's one of my favorites. Doug is the best. Doug's great. And then, then you have Kevin, the, the bird. Yes. Who likes chocolate. <laughs> That's true. Like I, and they could have so easily had any of those characters be obnoxious and something that kids would enjoy but later on when you watch it just go like well this movie's kind of annoying but it's not it's still good yeah pixar does a great job of making their comic relief characters good they're not annoying (laughs) which is where a lot of those characters come in uh the first thing that comes to mind for something like that is the minions yeah (laughs) where the first spickle movie was great But when they started focusing on the minions, it's like, please no. Please, please no. Yeah, and they they could have had essentially minion-esque characters end up, and I'm glad that none of the characters end up like that. Yes. Uh, Another favorite part is the, like, alpha male dog, the Rottweiler, uh, gets a really high squeaky voice because it's colored all modified. And it's lovely. Yeah, that that is pretty great. And I even like the bad guy. The bad guy's charming. He's got a nice voice, but he's also... He's very debonair. Uh, but he's definitely murderous. Yeah, he's kind of, in a lot of ways, the exact opposite of the main character, Carl. Because Carl is frumpy, uh... And a very curmudgeonly old man because the person who he shared his life with is gone. He doesn't care anymore. Yeah, but deep down, he's a super loving guy. Like, he takes care of the kid, even though he starts off just being annoyed by this kid. He takes care of Doug. He takes care of the bird. He makes sure everybody's okay. He's not going to let them die. (laughs) Yeah. Whereas... The suave adventurer man ends up being, deep down, a bad guy. Yeah, because he was personally humiliated and he refuses to accept that. He's like, no, I'm going to prove to them that I was right. Yeah, and I, I think looking at the Pixar films, this is probably the best example of a main character clashing with a bad guy for those reasons. Yeah, That relationship is super well-formed. It's even better that uh, Muntz, uh, the adventurer, was uh, Carl's hero growing up. It does add an extra layer of sadness to the fact that they end up in conflict. Um, And before we move on from Up, I think we should uh, mention that its director is the same guy who did Monsters, Inc. uh, And they brought back on the composer from both the incredibles and ratatouille and i think the story you feel how there can be a connection to monsters inc in terms of how how human it feels and the role of the children in both are very similar yeah um and the score is also pretty good and up it's less of a standout than it is in the incredibles and ratatouille but it's still good and it's it's definitely up there in my favorites as far as pixar movies go definitely Um, After Up, we started getting more into the sequels. Toy Story 3 comes out, and Cars 2 comes out, which we already 
spoke on both of those. And then their next original film is actually one I haven't managed to see yet, and that's Brave. Brave, I like, but then again, uh, I'm Irish, so the score I absolutely adore. Uh, Touch the Sky is one of my absolute favorite songs from it. It's just really wonderful. And since my last name is Barry, I have had a collection of stuffed bears growing up and seeing uh, the mom turn into a bear and seeing the triplets turn into bear cubs. It was really cute. It's a really good mother-daughter relationship movie because... Merida is fiercely independent. She doesn't want to be this prim and proper lady that her mother is and wants her to become. And through the movie, they start to understand each other's viewpoints a little bit more. That's that's good to hear. In uh, that way, it kind of has the family unit of, say, like Finding Nemo, except with the genders reverse then it definitely does i mean the father is still there but merida and her mother are who are going through this because merida makes the mistake of talking to a witch uh who has a cabin that is full of carved bears and surprise mom becomes a bear yeah, this this is definitely one that as it was coming out, it felt more like a movie that would fit better under the Disney banner. It's, well, not a princess exactly. Uh, she's the heir to her clan's, like, leadership. She is, and I want to say she's officially on the roster of Disney princesses. Yeah, so it seems very odd that, that it is considered under the Pixar films. It has some outside directors some names that we've not seen previously under the director's lists or the writer's lists for the previous Pixar films who have Mark Andrews and Brenda Chapman coming on to direct the film and I'm I'm not familiar with them at all um someone else does the score than any of the people that generally have done scores for the films uh it's someone named Patrick Doyle so I'm guessing that uh helps the irish feel it probably does i know technically it's scottish but yeah that's fair the celtic feel yeah yeah that's that's more accurate and i suppose since i haven't seen this i don't really have anything else to add about brave uh i want to say it's easter egg is sully from monsters inc is carved uh in the witch's house interesting that kind of fits with the bears, I suppose. It does. I think it was the closest thing that they could manage to fit in. Yeah. Yeah, you can't really do the, the Pizza Planet truck. No, it's going to be a little bit out of place in it. Um, and then the next original movie, because we get Monster University in between, which I don't think we really touched on during Monsters, Inc. Um, it's not one that I've actually had a chance to see, so I don't know much and much about it yeah there's there's not a lot i can really add even though i've seen it um it's okay a lot of people don't like it a lot uh, uh i officially met one person today at work who actually likes it oh 
He is, I think, the first person that I know that likes it, and his uh, fiance has one of the Letterman's jackets from the frat. Weird. I, I definitely am not as strong on the hate train as a lot of people are for this film, but I probably won't watch it again unless I'm watching, like, all the Pixar films for some reason. Like, like it, it was okay. I saw it. I thought it was fine. I've moved on. Yeah, I'll probably watch it at some point. I believe it's on Netflix or some other streaming service, so I, I can so. take a few minutes and watch it. Yeah, it's not bad to me, um, but it's just kind of a movie. Yeah. Uh, it's also directed by someone who we don't really see otherwise in the big canon of Pixar films, Dan Scanton. It does bring back the composer from, from the previous film, but otherwise, it definitely seems like their lesser films are lesser connected to the core of the creators at Pixar. I don't know if they're lesser films or less well-received. They're trying to branch out, but they've had some misses. That's fair. I, I guess I should more say the, the less Pixar-feeling films is maybe a little more accurate. Or slash the sequels. I would definitely agree with that. Sequels don't seem to get the same love and care outside of Toy Story. Yeah, but they've got to love Toy Story. That's what made them a household name. It's what keeps people coming back is how great Toy Story was. It is. They've got some new ones that are really, really good, but Toy Story was their first. It's what they were built on. Yeah, and I, as much as it's always nicer to see when original films are coming out, I certainly don't blame them to keep coming out with Toy Story films, and since they keep being great, I'm not going to complain either. Um, But moving on to... The next film, this one's uh, Pete Docter, again, directing for Inside Out, who also did Up and Monsters, Inc. Um, and Inside Out is kind of, I think, considered by a lot of people a return to form, because it, it had been since Up that we got an original Pixar film that felt Pixar. Like, otherwise, there's sequels, and there's Brave, which... Although a lot of people liked, again, as we mentioned, felt like a Disney film. Um, but Inside Out definitely kind of went back to to the core of the, the Pixar ideas, at least for me. It really did. It was a nice return to form. You get these really, really fun characters. You get this amazing world inside of Riley's head that makes you kind of wonder, what would my islands be? What would my uh, emotions be like? Yeah, and what a, what a, like, good nuanced view of, like, talking about emotions changing as you get older and dealing with different, not only, like, hormonal issues, but she seems to be going through some at least, like, a bout of depression, whether that's a thing that would continue on through her life, it's definitely at this moment of big change in her life. Yeah, she had left her hometown, left the people that she loved and cared about, to the point where, like, one of her happy memories got tinged by sadness because she was learning that not everything's happy forever and 
that when you think of something in the in a present think of the past in a present moment it's tinged by what you're feeling in the present not just by what you felt then yeah kind of kind of the adding of the bitter to the bittersweet you know and learning that sadness has its place learning that feeling your emotions is the way to solve some of these issues that's true it's it's a very good film for kids to watch i i know i watched it like a lot more grown up but it still was great like it's still great to to see it definitely is uh i think the second time i watched it uh the pentacrest uh was doing their movies during the summer so james and i went and watched it on the side of the pentacrest oh that's great and uh for those that don't know the pentacrest is the university of iowa's version of like going down to the quad throw some frisbees around except there's like five sides so it's a pentacrest it's pretty cool it is pretty cool Mostly because they play movies there during the summer. Yeah, that that is a great thing. I, I liked when when we would all do that on occasion is go go watch movies there. Um, yeah, there's there's a weird thing uh, someone did online where they took Inside Out and they edited out all the moments of the things inside of her head and all the characters there. So it's just Riley's story from the outside. I think they called it Inside Out outside edition and it still worked it's still very touching it's still very nuanced it's still very cohesive it still all works together yeah and it's very bizarre it's a a definitely neat experiment in narrative storytelling is looking at something like that uh one thing that's really cool that i know about inside out specifically is some of the localization stuff that they did uh Riley, in the American version, hates broccoli, absolutely hates it, Uh, so much so that a forest of broccoli appears in her mind, uh, in the nightmares. Uh, In some other countries, instead of broccoli, it was green peppers. Because in those countries, Green peppers were more universally hated food than broccoli was. So they localized it so it made more sense in those countries. Yeah, and uh, talking about disgust, we get that a lot by the emotion disgust uh, played by Mindy Calling, which I, when I think disgust, it's hard to not hear Mindy Calling's voice just because of how well she plays being disgusted with things. And and that's even going back to The Office, not even just talking about Inside Out. Um, so she's great in the voice cast. Really, the whole voice cast is great. You've got Amy Poehler as Joy. Um, talking about The Office again, Phyllis Smith as Sadness. I don't really know her outside of The Office. I'd love to credit her for other things. Um, Richard Kind is Bing Bong, the imaginary friend, which... I love Richard Kind. He, he's got such a good voice. I liked him in sitcoms in the 90s. He was in, like, Spin City and Mad About You. Nice. Uh, Louis Black, because you can't get a more perfect guy to portray anger than the <laughs> comedian that is always yelling. It works very well. Yeah, you have Bill Hader as Fear, uh, and that's, that's, like, the main character's 
all played by A-list comedy actors. And then looking at some of the bit parts, you have Paula Poundstone as Forgetter Paula, who I see that credit. I can't think of who they're talking about. Uh, it's the scene where Joy and Sadness are going through the mind maze and you see these two uh, forgetters sucking up these memories that oh. are no longer relevant. And they're like, development theme, send it up. <laughs> That, well, that makes sense for Forgetter Bobby, is is Bobby Moynihan. Um, and then Frank Oz is one of the security guards. It's just kind of a bit part. And I love Frank Oz. You, you've got his, like, voice work as Yoda is his big ah, claim to fame. That explains why you love him. Yeah, see? Um, John Ratzenberger, classic guy who appears in Pixar films, uh... His biggest role is Ham, but he makes a small vocal appearance in, I think, every... Basically every. Yeah, if not every Pixar film, at least most of them. Uh, he shows up as a bit part Flea. I didn't know that before now, but Flea of the Red Hot Chili Peppers is <laughs> one of the mind worker cops. And Rashida Jones is one of the voices for when we see inside the mind of one of the cool girls, her emotions. Okay. Which, I mean, you can't pick someone cooler than Rashida Jones. Clearly not. Daughter of Quincy Jones, to name one cool thing about her. (laughs) Uh, But yeah, Inside Out, great. Um, We get get the same composer, uh, Michael Giacchino, that often pairs up with uh, Pete Docter. For like, uh, for Ratatouille and The Incredibles and Up. Um, do you have anything else you'd like to say about Inside Out? It's one of the better Pixar films, I think. But it really is. It's it tough is, competition too. It's definitely one of my favorites. Um, the next original film is another one I haven't seen. Where we're getting into like the couple of Pixar films I haven't seen. This one being The Good Dinosaur. This, I actually haven't seen either, so... Oh, no. Neither of us will get to say much about this. I know. It's one that there was never much marketing for. There was never much merchandising for. It's one of those that pretty well flew under the radar and isn't well loved or talked about by much of anybody. Yeah, it's another one that's not made by one of the core people. This one is... Peter Son, who I don't know, uh, which I think is a big part of it. The projects they don't have a lot of faith in or are different than the original stuff they kind of want to do, it seems like they might write off. Like, they're giving it to directors that aren't their main group. It makes me wonder, it's like, are they trying to write it off or are they... Is this a pet project for this person who's That's like, a good point. I have faith in this. I think it's going to do well. But because it, the main guys are like, I don't know about this. It doesn't get the marketing. It doesn't get the publicity that some of the other stuff does. That's true. You think it, it might be more of a position of playing favorites with the, the main crew getting the films that, that are going to get more marketing? Definitely, because marketing takes money, and if they don't have faith in a project, why would they spend the money? That's a good point. That's a good point. Um, After that, Andrew Stanton came back to do Finding Dory, which we talked about. 
uh, Cars 3 came out with another one of those directors that we haven't seen before coming on to direct it. It's like, haven't had a chance to see it. I've had friends who have. Uh, I have a friend who nannies, and she said she cried during it. So apparently it's got some pretty okay emotional moments that are pretty touching. Uh, I think it's mostly focused on Lightning uh, doing his one last race coming kind of obsolete. Yeah, this is another one that I haven't seen. Um, I didn't make a big priority to see the Cars sequels. I saw part of Cars 2, um, but I wasn't first in line to see Cars 3 like I would generally be with the Pixar films. Um, and next we have we have the latest film in the Pixar canon with Coco, which I know we all went to see together. We did. I absolutely loved Coco. I think it is the only uh, true musical that Pixar has ever produced. Yeah, I think that's a good point. And a lot of those moments, too, come from a very uh, diegetic place. Like, a lot of them are in the world where it makes sense that they're singing. I know we get probably some moments that are more musical-based, but a lot of it are people doing musical performances. Miguel has been obsessed with music since he was a child because it's been banned in his family. So him learning where he came from uh through his dead ancestors yeah it's it's definitely a love letter to like latin american music specifically like mexico uh, that being a big part of their culture there yeah dia de los muertos uh the which is the day that the film occurs uh it shows uh, some of their culture with the ofrendas. Uh, I loved Pixar's take on the land of the dead. It's bright, it's colorful, it's fun. Everyone looks like uh, sugar skulls, like how they're painted. Yeah, and I know generally we've been talking pretty freely about these films, but uh, since this one's newer, let's let's try to be a little careful not to spoil it as as much as there's some great twists and turns in this movie. Like, I I don't personally watch a lot of Spanish soaps, but, like, from the bit I've seen and from a little bit that's kind of filtered in culturally, uh, a lot of the twists feel very Spanish soap opera-like. And I think that's very intentional. It is. I want to say this movie actually did not premiere in North America first. It premiered in Mexico first. Yeah, I know uh, there was a brief bit of controversy because of the absurdly long Disney short that appeared before yep, Coco. There, there was a Frozen short that quickly got cut from most theaters. Yeah, Mexico just cut it out. They weren't having the fact that it was there because you go to see a culturally significant film it's like, about your people and then you get perhaps the widest Disney The widest film. white was. With with these Nordic blonde haired blue eyes characters with with just kind of a too long short. Even if it was something I'd be interested in, it was like twenty minutes, twenty to thirty minutes. And I want to say it didn't actually focus on Anna and Elsa. It focused on Olaf. So instead of focusing on white girls, you're focusing on a snowman. Yeah, white snowman. 
I mean, I'd hope he'd be white. Any other color would be real weird. Yeah, that, that'd be a gross snowman. Um, but we get someone who, to direct this film, isn't a huge player. Uh, he's previously done Toy Story 3, uh, but he appears under the writing credits for some of the other films. Um, definitely someone that they're giving more of a chance, but they're definitely putting a lot more behind him than they, they really, do the other directors. They really, really did. There is a lot of, like, merchandising for Coco, which uh, it is coming out on DVD really soon, if it hasn't already come out by the time this airs. Uh, Coco is Pixar's first foray into focusing on a specific culture. That's true, and it's a very good choice of them um to do like the mexican culture going from an american standpoint just because there's a large uh formerly mexican population here um plus like mexico is an up-and-coming film market it is just from a business standpoint like it is like it's a great look at their culture on its own without being cynical and talking about how good of a business decision. Yeah, I it mean, is. gotta look at that money. Yeah, that's true. But with like tensions running high from some silly political nonsense, having yeah. something that's like, hey, they're people and they have cool things too, is a nice touch. Yeah, I know this film uh, did oddly well in China, which there's a lot of uh, uh, China's not as liberal as far as racial politics go but despite that this film did very well in china and a lot of film critics are kind of attributing that to some cultural similarities as far as uh the respect for the ancestors and that sort of thing that's attributed in both uh, latin culture and also chinese culture and it kind of it's nice that it seems like it's bridging a gap there. It really is. It's nice to see something bringing multiple cultures together. Yeah, and you know, when when you get down to it, human stories are great at doing that. And there's few people better at doing human stories than Pixar, even when they're human stories with rats and fish. Yes. Or bugs. Or bugs. Or toys. Or really... <laughs> Cars, yeah, kind of, I guess. Yeah, they're not bad at doing doing cars having human relationships either. Um, is there any final thoughts you'd like to add on the Pixar phenomenon? I think we've wrapped it up for the moment. I'm excited to see Incredibles 2 and to see what new things Pixar is going to bring to the table in the next few years. Uh, I'm pretty excited too. All right. Well, it's been great talking with you about pixar films and just about every pixar film really uh so until next time everybody mm -hmm.